Good morning, Mary uh, 2023. We had a good time in the last year, in the old year, and we've had a good uh, first week or so of the new year. Hope you all have as well. Happy to be back. Uh, grateful for uh, for the rest and the time uh, in, in Houston, in Texas, but happy to be back here. We'll uh, come this morning kind of renewing our Sunday School series today on uh, on Scripture. We come to one of the questions that you have to deal with, you have to really understand, which is the question of how does the Bible relate to what we do today? How does the Bible relate to the history of the church? There have been plenty of Christians across plenty of days and plenty of years who have thought certain things about the Bible. We come to this question of Scripture and tradition. That's the question we're going to look at today. How does the tradition of the church, how does the history of the church relate to the Bible? Before we get there, let me uh, let me open this up in a word of prayer. Let me ask you to bow with me. Father, we come as people who have a history ourselves. We come as those who didn't just pop into existence this morning, but you have been with us in ages past. You've been with our fathers and our grandfathers and our mothers, our grandmothers. You've been with all your saints throughout all the ages. And we pray you would continue to bless your church. Help us to rightly understand how we are to read your Bible and get from your Bible to our lives today. We pray we would not uh, neglect the positions of those who have gone before us, their beliefs, their work, their death, on behalf of Christ. We pray that we would honor them as you do, even this morning. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we come, uh, as, as, as Christians here, I, I think we really ought to, I'll put out my, my, my argument to begin with, we ought to love our traditions. As sons and daughters of the Bible, we ought to love the heritage of Christians gone before us. But what does that actually mean? Let me open up here with a couple, of, with these two uh, sections, these two verses. The first from 2 Timothy 1. 13 and 14. Paul says to Timothy, follow the pattern of the sound words that you've heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Let me then just give to you the other one, 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 13. But we always give thanks to God, Paul writes, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. And then here's the key part. For this He called you through the gospel, so then stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. The Bible, the New Testament here clearly says, Paul, Paul says that the Thessalonian Christians hold to tradition. What does that mean? We live in a place and a time where the past is a dirty word. We live in a day and an age where history is really just ransacked as a tool to be used for my personal or my political gain. We live in a culture that cherry-picks history, that, that looks to figures in the past and says, oh, if they're good, they're bad. I like them, I don't like them because I can use them today in our society for my own ideas. And the church in America is the same. I've had numerous conversations, maybe you've had a couple of these, with people 
who question the need for anything else besides the Bible. I've had well-meaning Christians tell me, just give me Jesus Christ. I've had well-meaning Christians say to me, no creed, but Jesus. I've had folks say to me, doctrine divides. Love unites. Have you heard that kind of thing before? Have you heard people say those kind of things? I just want the Bible. Just give me the Bible. That's all I need. It's a common thing. You know, you, you have, you know, you, 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 you folks, you talk a lot about history, about uh, the traditions. You, you have these sort of things. You, you have these confessions you, you use. You, I come to church. I come in here, and I, there, there's, there's this creed thing that we do. We, we say it. I don't want, I, that's not in the Bible. I don't want to hear that stuff. Just give me Jesus. The Bible's all I need. You see, what happens is people take the history of the church, as folks are taking the history of America or the history of the world today, and they take the tradition of the dead, and they're viewed negatively. They take the, they take the history of the church, and the argument is, look, this is an extra-biblical standard that is binding my conscience. Don't put your man-made beliefs into my Jesus. And when I say the word tradition, of course, this, this can be a lot of things, right? Tradition can be all sorts of different uh, questions. It can be the fact that we have the Bible put right here instead of, uh, of, of an altar, right? We call this the Lord's table and not the Lord's altar. That's what the Roman Catholic Church does. That's, that's a, 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 in part a question of tradition. Uh, but this morning, I, I'm going to really narrow down this word tradition for the sake of time uh, to really look at the question of how do we connect the Bible with the historic creeds and confessions of the church. So when we speak about tradition this morning, I'm not talking about Donut Day. I know, I, I, I hesitate to say that maybe Donut Day is not actually a tradition that is... Uh, handed down from Paul to Timothy and so on to us, uh, but perhaps fellowship is, right? Uh, but today, for, just for the eve of the argument, I'm going to equate uh, tradition with our, with our historic uh, confessions and creeds. Creed from the Latin meaning I believe. We say it in the Apostles' Creed every day, right? Most weeks. I believe. Credo. Creed. And so <coughs> here's the point. It's very good to not want to hold to man-made doctrines that separate you from Jesus Christ. It's very good to want to be a woman of the book, a man of the Bible. It's very good, like John Bunyan, to want to bleed bibline, as they said of him, bleed Bible. We should want to uphold the supremacy of Scripture. I've said that before in the last few months in our Sunday school. But I think when people tell me, just give me Jesus, I don't need any of that nonsense about other tradition. Just give me Jesus. I think that actually misses the point. Here's the key question. Does the Bible itself instruct us to follow tradition? Does the Bible itself instruct us to have a role for confessions and creeds? And by confessions and creeds, again, I'm referring here to summaries of biblical doctrine. Does the Bible instruct us to have that? Because here's the deal, if the Bible tells us that we are to formulate confessions holding to the traditions given to us by the apostles, if the scriptures tell us we need to summarize truth to uphold 
the, the supremacy of the Bible, then you can't, then if you say, look, I just believe the Bible, I hate creeds, or I just believe the Bible, I don't want any traditions, it's actually a self-contradictory statement. To put it even simpler, if you love the Bible, but you hate the command that says, hold to tradition in the Bible, then you don't actually believe the Bible. You may believe most of the Bible, but you don't believe that part of the Bible that deals with the place of tradition. So today, in the time we have, um, I'm going to argue that there is a proper place for tradition. There's a right place for tradition, that when we uphold the supremacy of Scripture, we should uphold and love the traditional confessions and creeds of the church. And this is not actually a divisive issue. Often it's a negative thing because it's a, it feels, it's a, it, it, these are man-made documents. But it's actually safeguarding. It protects us. It, it is immensely helpful for the average Christian, for you and me, to know that the officers who are guiding and leading the church have to hold to the historic creeds, the historic confessions, the historic tradition of the church. And I would actually put it so far to say that if you want uh, our church to flourish, it will do so when we rightly understand the relationship between the Bible and tradition, the Bible and these confessions. In other words, when we are confessional Christians. So I'm going to do here a couple of things. I'm going to first look at, just give you a brief history. You probably know all this, most of this rather, but I just want to give you a few historical notes here to, what we're actually, to see what we're actually dealing with when I, when I say creeds and confessions. When it comes to the history of the church, we have a few things. First, we begin. After the New Testament church, what happens? Christians begin to debate. They begin to debate. You know this. They begin to debate the big topics. The Trinity. What's the relationship between the Father and the Son and the Spirit? They begin to debate Jesus. Is Jesus God? Yes, he's God. How is he God? How is he human? What does that all mean? How does that fit together? And how did they formulate their opinions on the matter? They produce creeds. They produce summaries of biblical truth drawn from intense study of Scripture and intense debate over it. This is why we use them. In part, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed. And classically, there are seven councils. We've covered this in our little history sections. There are seven church councils that produced statements, succinct statements. And that's the early church up to the 700s. And you get to the Reformation, skipping over a fair bit, unfortunately. You get to Luther and Cranmer in England and Calvin and Martin Butzer and all those guys. What are they busy doing? All the time. They're not just preaching. They're not just discipling. They're not just evangelizing. They write confessions of faith, tons of them. In about 75 years, 1525 to 1600, we have dozens of confessions of faith. There's a, a translation that's, that's been put into English the last decade or so. It's like four volumes, all on the 16th century, all, all on this, this short hundred-year burst. Because wherever the Reformation took hold, they produced a confession of faith. We have, a, we have a, a confession of faith from a church in Transylvania. It's not written by Dracula. It was written by the small Reformed community there. Because wherever the Reformation took hold, 
They produce the confession of faith. And what are they doing in those confessions? What are they doing in those traditional statements? They are mostly reusing the early church documents, the ancient creeds. They say, we stand with the Christians of old. We stand with the Orthodox doctrine. What else do they do? They write catechisms right now, downstairs. Maybe not this week of donuts, but next week. The kids are going to learn, they're going to give the answer to the catechism questions. And the one we use downstairs is a very baby one. It's a very easy one. It's a children's catechism. They use hard ones to train their kids. And our church holds to one of these confessional statements. You may know this. I argue one of the best of them. It's the most mature in many ways than all. The Westminster Confession of Faith. It's a distillation of truth. I'd encourage you to do something weird with it. If you have a copy, you can find it online. If you need a copy, talk to me. I'll give you one. Because it's so simple. It's so simple on the one hand, so deep on the other hand. So simple on the one hand, because it has a chapter on Jesus, a chapter on God, a chapter on Scripture, a chapter on us, humanity, a chapter on justification by faith. It's not rocket science, but it's put beautifully. I think, think about the opening question of the Shorter Catechism. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. If you just memorize that one, if you just meditate on that question and answer, it tells you why you should get out of bed in the morning. I mean, we live in a day where so many people are so confused about their lives. We live in a day, as I've mentioned on multiple occasions, where depression, anxiety, and loneliness among teenagers, particularly teenage girls, young girls, is, is so high. People are lost. People don't know what to do with themselves. And in, those, in that short question and answer, very pithy, biblical, deep meaning, what is my goal? Why should I get up today? to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. I would encourage you, even if you, if you get, a, get a hold of one, get a hold of a copy of, of our confessional statements, do what C.S. Lewis did. You know what C.S. Lewis did? He said, look, when I'm feeling down, when I'm feeling low, when I need my heart warm, when I need to, to really love Jesus and get a, a beautiful time, a sweet time of, of intimacy with Him, I actually don't go pick up a devotional book. You know, that'd be our move. If we're feeling, well, I'm a little down, I'm going to go read a, some kind of really warm-hearted devotional book. He said, actually, I want to read a bit of theology. I'm going to read some, some heavy-hitting stuff. He found that when he got his head into a rich piece, a meat of theology, his heart was warmed. I'd encourage you to try that with the Westminster Confession. So that's the history. Now the biblical data, right? Any questions on the history so far? And we're going to come to the kind of the biblical data. Just so you know what we're talking about when we speak about uh, tradition and confession of the church. Questions so far? All right, moving on now to the biblical data. Do you know the Bible itself contains creeds and confessions? The Bible itself contains traditional statements. The most famous one. Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5. The Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It's a confession of faith. It's classic. I mean, if you have any Jewish friends and they, they're at all uh, semi-devout, they're going to know it. They're going to know it. it's classic. The Psalms contain confession. Psalm 33, Psalm 97. They incorporate statements. Uh, in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 15, 3-7. 
For I delivered to you as of first importance, Paul says. And then he goes on, he gives a confession of faith. Christ died. He was, he was buried. He was raised again. It's a confession of faith. 1 Timothy 3.16. Paul takes a well-known summary of truth about Jesus and incorporates it into Scripture. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. And then in the ESV, it's put in kind of poetic verse, indicating it's a different style. And the style it is, is that of an ancient church confession. Christians were confessing this about Jesus in the first century, just a couple of decades after Christ died. And Paul hears it at church, and he puts it into his letter. And perhaps the, the most famous one for the New Testament is Philippians 2. Five through eleven, also a hymn, also probably a song, but a, a, a hymn and a song that was was sung about Christ's humiliation. It was confessed. Christ humbled himself. Right, had this mind among you that was in Christ Jesus, who though being in the form of God, not kind of quality God thing to grasp, but humbled himself, and so on. And so in the Bible, we have examples of creeds and confessions. Right, did you have a... What do you want to say? Directly. Um, but I would also think that the music of Scripture is basically confessional and, you know, and, and used to help the lay people learn good doctrine, basically. Yeah. It can go all the way back to Moses. Myriad songs, yeah. you know, and then the, the songs of ascent, really all the songs. Yeah, that's true, Greg. I mean, but what we what we sing is what we believe, you know. That, that's that's very true. Um, additionally, as we look at the biblical data, the church is actually commanded to make confessions of faith that are not simply repeating Bible verses. This is Romans ten. You know this verse. I hope you do. Romans ten. 9 to 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe you in your heart and God raised him from the dead, then you shall be saved. I know that one, that one is a good Southern Baptist. It's a great, great verse. But what is it? I, I didn't really think about it. I just focused on, well, if you believe in your heart and you just say it, then you're good. That was kind of how we were taught it. But it's not just say it, it's confess. It's a command to confess. Now, to confess is not just, I say it in my you know, bed when I'm eight years old. Confession is a public activity. It's a verbal activity. It's a scriptural reality. And any confession you make requires an object. What are you confessing when you say, I believe in Jesus? Everybody will say that. They say, well, this out. Your neighbors will all say, I almost guarantee it if you push them hard enough. Oh, yeah, I believe there's a God. I believe. Yeah, Jesus. Yeah, Jesus, sure. I believe in Jesus. I mean, the Mormons on the street say they believe in Jesus. The Muslims say they believe in Jesus. I was over, over break, uh, over the holidays. I was in Texas, and I was shocked. Uh, literally, I, I saw a billboard that said, Jesus was a great prophet. Come hear about a greater prophet. It was a mosque. There's a billboard advertisement in Houston, Texas, on the interstate. And so the Muslims confess Jesus. The, the Mormons confess Jesus. The Jehovah's Witnesses confess Jesus. When you meet somebody and they say, I believe in Jesus, what should your very next question be? What 
do you believe about Jesus? You believe about him, but what actually do you believe about him? I hope that Jesus of Islam is not your Jesus, it's not mine. I hope that Jesus of the Mormons down the street is not your Jesus, it's not mine. It's simply not good enough to say, I love Jesus. Which Jesus? Is he very God? Is he fully God? Is he pre-existent? And immediately, whenever you start to answer the question, what do you believe about Jesus? You're in the world of confessing. The very heart of the Christian faith. So then we come to the actual, these two verses that, that, that I quoted earlier at the very start to get into the nitty-gritty here of uh, what it means to, to have traditions. These are verses in the New Testament that mention confessioning, confessions and mention, mention traditions. So let me give you the, the thesis first. argument I'll take here is that the Bible instructs Christians to hold doctrine that accurately summarizes biblical truth. To put it even more basically, God's Word does more than ask us to believe God's Word. The Bible does more than tell you to believe the Bible. It commands us to believe, confess, and live according to accurate summaries of biblical truth passed down from the apostles. So let's look at this first one here just to prove that point. Paul says, follow the pattern. 2 Timothy 1, 13, follow the pattern of the sound words that you've heard from me. He goes on to say, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Now let's look at these words. Follow the pattern of sound words. That word pattern means a form or a standard or a model. It's a form or a standard of healthy words. Even the footnote in the ESV says sound is often healthy. That word sound does not just mean they're right. It means it's good for you. It's nourishing for you. There's health in these words. And then Paul says, verse 14 Timothy, guard this model, protect this model. Now, what is this model? Where did Timothy get the pattern of these healthy words he's supposed to guard and protect? Paul tells him, verse 13, that you have heard from me. Timothy heard it. What does that mean? It's not just the Bible. Paul does not say that I wrote in the first letter I sent to you. He says that I passed on what I said, that what you heard, not just what I wrote down. He means the Bible. Yes, of course he means to follow the Bible, but, but more than that. And in case that's a little challenging for us, Second uh, Thessalonians 2 is even more clear. Paul says, Hold to the traditions you were taught us either by our spoken word or our letter. 2.15. Stand firm and hold to the traditions. See what Paul's saying? He's saying, yes, follow Scripture, but follow the pattern that you received from me. Follow the apostolic truth passed down, follow the traditions. And it's not just the doctrine, not just the ideas, but Paul is referring to something definite. He says there's a pattern here. There's not just a, a kind of random set of words. It's a, it's a pattern. It's a, it has a particular, specific, definite form. Paul's talking here about specialized 
theological vocabulary. I had an acquaintance at seminary uh, who literally was a member of a charismatic cult. She said it was a church. The website said it was a church. The guy in charge was her father. And um, he was so amazing, apparently so gifted by the Spirit, that only he could rightly translate the Bible. And so he'd been working on translating the New Testament for the past 30 years. He hadn't quite gotten that far. But he was really going to show you how all the other churches are wrong and how his so-called church uh, was right. And one of her arguments she often used uh, was, Trinity is an example of the evil Christian church imposing itself, so-called Christian church imposing its, its beliefs in the Bible because the word Trinity is not in the Bible. I'm a biblical Christian. I believe the Bible. The word Trinity is not in the Bible. Therefore, you can't bind my conscience and force me to believe in that stuff. That's a bunch of mumbo-jumbo. I hope you realize how serious this is. The early Christian church, you may know, faced serious persecution. They died. They faced martyrdom all the time. What did they fear worse than dying? They feared heresy worse than dying. They feared heresy more than death by lions in the Colosseum. Why did they fear that more than death? Because they knew that heresy condemned you to hell if you did not hold to the right traditions, right beliefs. It's very serious. So why is Trinity, for example, an important word? Why is it a word that we can and sure use? Because Paul is saying, look, we come to the Bible. We want to believe the Bible. We want to believe what the Bible says. But in believing what the Bible says, we're not limited to just quoting Bible verses. We're not limited to just using Bible lingo, Bible language. And this is what you do when your kids ask you. This is what you do when your grandkids ask you. Mom, Dad, who is Jesus? Do you just quote Bible verses to them? They may not really get what you're saying if you just do it. Maybe they can if they're smart, but you explain to them. You summarize biblical data. Now, let me be very clear here as we come to a close, and we'll have to, uh, we'll have to get into this more, I think, next week. <clears throat> but let me close with this kind of very clear point. I, I'm not saying that tradition or that our confessional statement or that the Apostles' Creed is on par with Scripture. I'm not saying that the Westminster Confession is equal to the Bible. In fact, our confession itself says councils and creeds can err, and they have. There's a qualitative difference between Scripture and tradition. But if you want to have this as your highest authority, if you want the Bible to be supreme, your ultimate authority, you need confession to tell you it's your highest authority. See, what happens? What happens when you take away the Apostles' Creed? What happens when you take away these summaries of doctrine? You see it all the time, all the time. I went to two seminaries. They were very different seminaries. I don't have the time to go into the details of it. But the one key difference between them is that the first one I went to wanted to be like the second one I went to, a solid Christian, orthodox, intellectual, 
culturally relevant school, institution. It wanted to be like that, except back in the 50s when they set it up, they didn't want one thing. They didn't want a confession. They didn't want to require their teachers, their professors, to submit to anything uh, that other Christians had submitted to. They had a very uh, small uh, statement of beliefs that you kind of had to hold to, that Unitarians could hold to in many ways. Uh, and so it's not, not a surprise that one of my classes at that school was taught by a Unitarian, for example. Right? They had wanted to, I mean, this is a, if I'm, I'm not going to name names here, but it's, they call themselves to this day the largest evangelical seminary in the, in the U.S., in the world. And that, the second one I went to was very similar, but they had, they, the, the professors were required to hold the, the confessions of faith, and they, they remained solid, and so on and so forth. You see this all the time in, in churches. It's all the time. Um, it's a good thing to want to hold the supremacy of Scripture. But if you just have the Bible and you're trying to hold on to the supremacy of the Bible, you're actually going to lose authority. You need the pattern. That's what Paul says. You need healthy words. You need the pattern of healthy words to uphold biblical truth. And yet, and yet, I'll close with this fun little word distinction here. And yet, um, when it comes to the question of confessions and of traditions, at best, this has a ministerial role. This is your vocab, I suppose, for the day. At best, the creeds have what's called a ministerial authority. What is a minister? Minister? A servant. Latin, servant. A ministerial authority. That is, no confession or creed, and we'll get into this more next time when we discuss the Roman Catholic Church and the, the relationship between Scripture and tradition more, more definitely. But a tradition or a statement of traditional belief in a creed is simply a servant of Jesus Christ, a servant of true doctrine. And that's why as a minister, I don't set policy. I don't set principles. The officer of the church do not set policy. But in the words of uh, Scott Swain and Mike Allen, they administer the determinative judgments of Jesus. Jesus Christ is the only magisterial, here's the, here's the opposite, magisterial, from the Latin magister, magister, technically, uh, meaning lord or master. The magister, the, the lord, Jesus Christ, is the one who can set the terms. He sets the policy of the church. That's why his word is supreme. But in order to keep that word supreme, he gives, he gives officers and he, he gives these commands to follow the pattern. Follow the pattern. There's a pattern there. Well, it is, uh, it is time. Questions, comments, cares, concerns? Like I said, we're going to discuss uh, this more deeply next week when it comes to the uh, Roman Catholic Church. We'll discuss it when it comes to the, uh, the Baptist Church, and we'll kind of lay out the playing field uh, in our modern world a little more. Did demons believe in Christ? 
That's excellent. Uh, that's, a, that's a great point. Great point, Jim. Yeah, well, let me, uh, let me, let me close then with no, no, you can talk to me afterwards, I guess. Close in prayer. Lord, we thank you that you have um, given us your word. We thank you that you want us to hold to it and to keep it. And so you, you help us. You, you give us um, the, the traditions of, of your apostles. Uh, not that we make up things to force on people, but that we seek to summarize what you have given to us in your word that we might hold to it better and not worse, that we might not bind consciences beyond what you bind them to. So we pray that you would help us to do that this day and that you would even continue to glorify your church as we come to worship you. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you all.